0: Christmas! Welcome to the History Cafe Christmas Party. Did you know that the modern Christmas was thought up by the American novelist Washington Irving?
1: No, it wasn't. It was thought up by the
0: British writer Charles Dickens. Or maybe it was actually invented by Victoria's husband, her consort, Prince Albert.
1: Ah, because he was German?
0: Because he was, yeah, German. <laughs> well, no surprise, all of this is just, well, nonsense, a kind of Christmas party. Party game.
1: The thing is, popular history just can't resist attaching a famous name to things, especially if the name belongs to a writer or a royal.
0: So let's just open another bottle and see if we can do a bit better.
1: <laughs> Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow.
0: And I'm John Roseback, and we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory but just don't look quite right to us.
1: So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. So where did our modern Christmas come from? You know, Father Christmas, the Christmas tree, stockings on the fireplace, the family get-together, the panto, the snowy Christmas cards and all the rest of the razzmatazz. We have the vague idea that it must all be somehow traditional and that it's all being spoiled by too much commercialisation. Well, the answer
0: is... The Victorians invented it. Well, more or less. With a lot of help from the rest of history. It's really too much for one short podcast and Christmas is busy enough as it is and the party can't go on forever. So here is just a short taster. You have to
1: start with Father Christmas or Santa Claus or whatever you like to call him.
0: Santa Claus began to appear in, well, something like his modern shape in 1810 in a note handed round to the Knickerbockers.
1: Ah, the New York baseball team. No,
0: not the baseball team, no. <laughs> a local history society that was meeting in New York, uh, in, New York in that okay. year, 1810. The note was written by a member of the Knickerbockers, a merchant and philanthropist called John Pintard, a religious man. Pintard had convinced the Knickerbockers to adopt St. Nicholas, or Santa Claus, as he that's called That's because they
1: were called Nicker- Bocker Nicholas, is Nic- that the connection?
0: It is. Oh, New Yorkers yeah. are called Knickerbockers. Mm. Well, he persuaded the Knickerbockers to adopt St. Nicholas as their patron saint. Oh. And also, in fact, the patron saint of New York. Really? So this dinner this year in 1810 was to celebrate St. Nicholas's feast day, 6th of December. Pintard, in fact, was campaigning for it to be a public holiday for poor, penniless New Yorkers.
1: Pintard's Santa was then picked up by one of the Knickerbockers at the dinner, the novelist Washington Irving. Aha. Uh-huh. A couple of years later, he wove Santa into the second edition of his History of New York. In fact, he then quickly did come to England. Where he gave an account of an English Christmas at a run-down country house in three essays for his book, his well-known book, The Sketchbook of Geoffrey Crayon Gent. <laughs>
0: hmm. So far, we might, in fact, note from his account, there was no Santa Claus, apparently, in England. In fact, no children at Christmas at all. No children? (laughs) Not much else we'd recognise as part of our Christmas, except for a lot of freezing temperatures and frost.
1: What did they do in this country, house?
0: They ate a lot and went to church. (laughs) Anyway, meanwhile, back in New York, Santa was acquiring the Big Beard and also the art of climbing down a chimney, along with all the stockings on the mantelpiece, and a sleigh with flying reindeer. All this had turned up in The Children's Friend, an American kid's annual for 1821.
1: But most people subsequently heard of him, now with all the chimney and stockings business, and this time even with the names of his reindeer, Donner, Blixen, Dancer and Prancer, and the rest in a poem published anonymously in 1823. We all know it became known to generations of children as the night before Christmas. Christmas. 'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that Saint Nicholas soon would be there. <laughs>
0: The poem, in fact, was the work of yet another Knickerbocker. Another Knickerbocker? Clement Clark Moore, who was Professor of Oriental and Greek Literature and Divinity and Biblical Studies in New York's General Theological Seminary. And he was, in fact, a friend of Pintard's. So there you are. Santa Santa Claus is a New Yorker. A New Yorker.
1: No, he isn't. Like most things in history, this is your phrase, John, invention is the child of evolution. Historian Tom German has shown that bearded old men in fur coats have in fact been appearing across Europe in December or January since before the Romans. The English Father Christmas apparently made his debut, but without giving any gifts, in the 17th
0: century. Actually, some of them are women, like the Russian Snow Maiden Snegoruchka. Excuse my Russian. Or the <laughs> French-Swiss right? Tante Harry. Uh, and some
1: mythical creatures like Saint Nick the Elf. Some, like the bad-tempered, rainish Belsnickel, arrive to quiz children on their behaviour. So that's where the idea of, you know, have you been good? Father Christmas is only coming, have you been good?
0: And so many of these people fly, usually in a chariot pulled by goats or snakes or leopards. Much better
1: better than reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> but the Alpine Bekhtar arrived on a broomstick before climbing down your chimney. If you'd been good, I don't think my son would have gone for that.
0: In Scandinavia, Santa seems to have been confused with the traditional yot Mutter or Nissamen, who are sort of little gnome-like creatures who've been organising the winter solstice for years. In fact, we've got a lot of Nissamen on our mantelpiece. Because... They were made by my Danish step-grandmother. They're very beautiful, and they seem to have loaned Santa Claus their long beards and their trademark pointy hats. Uh-huh. Mm. In Germany, a whole crowd of similar characters had been banded together at some point as the Weihnachtsmann, Christmas night man.
1: And the Dutch had dodged the Reformation ban on celebrating saints by renaming their Christmas patron saint, Sinterklaas. In fact, New York's Knickerbockers were interested in St Nicholas precisely because Pintard had witnessed the city's big Dutch expat
0: population celebrating the Feast of Sinterklaas. Of course, the city of New York's original 17th century name had in fact been New Amsterdam. Because there were so many Dutch. Big Dutch mm-hmm. population.
1: It's no surprise that these otherworldly midwinter visitors pop up all over Europe. The Christian festival of Christmas was the latecomer to this midwinter party, which long predates the church. The church simply adopted these much older pagan midwinter festivals of light, just as it had versioned
0: Easter and other pagan festivals. See, the point is, nobody knows when Jesus was born, except that it was not in the winter. If the shepherds really were in the fields. But connecting the birth of the light of the world with the return of daylight at the winter solstice, well, that's too good an opportunity to miss. Mm -hmm. So the winter festivals became Christmas. Much, much easier to get people to change a few names rather than give up their old parties and holidays.
1: So it's no surprise that the lands of the former Roman Empire are heavily populated with hoary old characters.
0: Uh, Some a bit more fairy-like.
1: Who used to celebrate the solstice before the church arrived. They either quietly survived in popular folklore or found themselves being co-opted into the Christian Christmas.
0: So the character we now celebrate as Santa Claus, and who was being picked up in eighteen ten by the Knickerbockers, is just the latest and now most widely known embodiment of all these ancient and mysterious figures. Yes, no wonder he feels sort of strangely out of time and place, it's kind of rather frightening, a magical figure from a sort of old pagan fairyland.
1: And we still half want to believe in him. So what does St Nicholas have to do with any of this? Some obscure 4th century bishop
0: in what's now Turkey? Well, well that's another whole story. I mean, how, how long have we got? We haven't got long enough. But short answer <laughs> is very little.
1: So what about Charles Dickens? must have time for him. <laughs>
0: Ah yes, Charles Dickens. His little novel, A Christmas Carol, I remember studying it at school, appeared in December 1843 and has been credited... or Blamed? ...for creating the cosy... dressful ...family Christmas and the tradition of gift-giving, especially to children. Ah, we can blame him then. Well, you remember Scrooge and his poor clerk, Bob Cratchit, with his struggling family and disabled child, Tiny Tim. And the ghosts who mm-hmm. convinced Scrooge the rich, like him, owe something to the poor and that he wouldn't be such a miserable old sod if he did something <laughs> about it. Of course, a Christmas carol didn't start the tradition of a family Christmas. There had been loud debates since the 1820s about whether Christmas was a joyful family reunion or a matter of putting up with irritating relatives. I think it depends what your relatives are like. <laughs> but the book represents something both much more profound and something much more trivial. To start with, it was a publishing sensation.
1: Yes, historian Tara Moore has shown that the Dickens book was part of a drive by publishers to cash in on Christmas. It had begun in the late 1820s, reached its peak in the 1830s, but lasted to the 1860s. Mostly, it was about getting parents to buy Christmas annuals for their kids,
0: books of illustrated stories. They didn't even have to be about Christmas. In the 1820s and 30s, there'd also been something of a craze for collecting folklore, which had generated, among many other things, some studies of Christmas customs. Like, um, you know that one where you stick a plum pie on your cow's horn? Mm, no, and then remind you throw, me. <laughs> and then, well, you, then you throw cider in the poor animal's face and you watch where the pie comes down.
1: What, because it chucks it in the air? Because uh, um, it's so horrified?
0: Presumably. And, and then, well, then what happens? But from all this, you predict... The next year's harvest. <laughs> Very good. It's what you did in Herefordshire, of course. Herefordshire.
1: Actually, the reason for these folklore collections was that Christmas customs had been starting to fade away. Like many other
0: customs, in fact, in rural England.
1: More and more of the rural poor had started to drift to slightly better paid
0: jobs in the towns. And let's not get involved in all the old myth of enclosures. Yes, don't talk to John about enclosures. Pushing people into towns. Most of them chose to go there out of blunt economic necessity because they needed better jobs. Anyway. Once they'd arrived in the towns, they discovered that the old village winter holiday had somehow shrunk to a single day. Mm, No more old Christmas festivities.
1: Well, at least the cow was probably relieved. Probably
0: was, yeah.
1: So, Dickens' Christmas Carol played into this profitable new Christmas publishing market, as well, in fact, as a long tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas. I think we should revive that. It was also part of a turn towards working out what Christmas was now like in a new urban setting when you only had one day off.
0: Of course, you remember that it was all set within London. But A Christmas Carol's roots go deeper than this. They grew out of a powerful mood of early Victorian anxiety. The 1830s, you see, had been shot through by what became known as the condition of England question. The obvious prosperity of a few early industrialists had come to contrast all too shockingly with the poverty of the majority. It was horribly clear, not only in the towns, but also out in the villages, which had become horribly overcrowded and blighted with falling wages. And out there in the countryside, government protection for the wealthy landowners, the corn laws, played very badly with the new supposedly utilitarian shift from traditionally generous poor relief for the rural poor to pointless persecution in the workhouse.
1: You've always wanted to do something on the
0: workhouse. Mm, We should.
1: The hungry 40s promised to be even worse. In 1844, a naturalist from Lviv in Ukraine, there's an iron here, called John Lotsky published a shocking study of London poverty. In it, Lotsky recounted a series of tales of individuals literally starving to death in the streets of the
0: capital city. Literally starving to death as people walked past. It won't be long. Well, Dickens and indeed other authors had long campaigned against the scandal of London poverty, Christmas in the workhouse had already become an annual image in the magazines. Dickens himself was apparently inspired to write A Christmas Carol by a visit to a ragged school for poor children in October 1843 in London. By the 2nd of December, he'd already written the text. That was speedy. Well, it was published less than three weeks later on the 19th of December. It's a secular morality tale for the city rich like Scrooge, the mean money lender. A call for justice and generosity amid the conspicuous consumption of Christmas. It played directly to the growing urban Victorian middle class conscience.
1: Dickens demanded that the book be published in full-scap octavo.
0: Which means roughly uh, 11 by 17 centimetres. little small pocketbook.
1: So small. In crimson covers with gold lettering and sold at five shillings. Just
0: a great deal for so small a book.
1: It was such a runaway success that for much of the rest of the century, publishers went on pouring out overpriced, pocket-sized Christmas books.
0: In crimson covers and gold lettering. Yeah.
1: By 1864, the bookseller magazine for bookshops was having to issue a double Christmas edition because it had 200 pages of new titles
0: to list. 200 pages? Well, the important thing about all of this is that by the end of the 1840s, if not before, Christmas had already become a cynically calculated commercial heist. The Christmas book market was getting underway in October of every year oh and leading along all kinds of other sales, not least as industrialization turned out cheap, mass-produced toys.
1: By the second half of the 19th century, Christmas books especially targeted the young. As the market for children's literature took off, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland was a Christmas book in 1864. A Christmas book? Carol tried to delay through the looking glass until after Christmas in 1871. After all, who wants to be known as Christmas Carol? <laughs> that's good. But his publishers overruled him. They wanted it for Christmas.
0: The notion that Christmas has only recently been swamped by commercialisation is obviously a myth. It's oh, been that, that way for at least 200 years. <laughs> Dickens had been a significant part of it, but hadn't really invented it any more than he'd invented the English family Christmas. The importance of his Christmas carol was that it called to a deep unease in Victorian society. It helped give Christmas a secular edge of morality that it still has.
1: It still does. Yeah, we do still give more at Christmas to other people. And so, here's to... Prince Albert. Prince Albert. Cheers, Ohilus. (laughs) Highness. By the end of the 19th century, the story was already being told that Prince Albert had introduced the Christmas tree to Britain after his marriage to Queen Victoria in 1840. The reality was that the British had been interested in German Christmas customs for decades before Albert stepped ashore. Back in 1809, the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge had written a much republished account of spending Christmas in Ratzburg in northwest Germany.
0: So what about the Christmas tree? Uh, Well, in 1844, a children's book, The Christmas Tree, a present from Germany, showed that illuminated Christmas trees had in fact been around in England for years. Although they weren't yet all that common, the book was just one of a long series of similar books written for children about German Christmases stretching from the 1840s to the early
1: 1870s. I'm sure my mum had one. The historian Neil Armstrong, not to be confused with the astronaut, argues that that was a result of the late 18th and early 19th century boom in German children's literature. Children's literature came earlier to Germany than to England and was often shot through with
0: Protestant morality. Which, of course, appealed to the Victorians.
1: Mm -hmm. In the middle of the century, this interest in Germany also reflected the influence of the rapidly growing German toy-making industry. They were cutting down large German forests
0: and processing it all through efficient new factories to make wooden toys. In fact, you know, by 1913, the Germans were providing over 80% of the toys that young Brits were being given for Christmas.
1: And Which is why you must listen to our podcast on why we went to war in 1914. Under the Christmas tree, for example, would have been German stuffed Steiff bears. Better known these days as teddy bears.
0: But But that's only because they were renamed after the bear that the US President uh, Teddy Roosevelt didn't shoot on one of his hunting expeditions. (laughs) He he shot pretty much everything else, but still. The interest in things German may also have emerged from the 18th and 19th century fashion to look for historical roots of English laws and customs back among the Anglo-Saxons, who, of course, of course had originally course come German, yeah. from Germany. Yeah. And from the fashion among the English wealthy for German governesses.
1: Much more reliable than
0: French. Yeah, more about that in our series about the origins of the First World War. So then, what about Franz August Karl Albert Emmanuel of saxe coburg Gotha? Prince Albert <laughs> Prince Albert to you and me well he had apparently introduced the Christmas tree to Windsor Castle in 1840 the year he'd married Queen Victoria uh-huh. at Christmas 1848 a lithograph appeared in the illustrated London news showing Victoria, Albert and their now five young children standing around a Christmas tree but uh, well it said nothing about the Germans and that so far as Prince Albert and Christmas is concerned seems to be that And then there's the Norwegian
1: spruce put up in Trafalgar Square every Christmas.
0: Yeah, it's a thank you present for Britain's support against the Nazis during World War II, first started by King Harkon VII in 1943, while in fact he was in exile in Britain. It's a lovely tradition. Anyway, back to the Victorians. You really do have to conclude that an impressive percentage of our present day Christmas was invented, or should we say assembled, by the Victorians. They pieced together images and traditions and people and trees Please. and goodness knows what else from bits and pieces that came to them from all over Europe and America. And then they encapsulated it in what was essentially a middle class London domestic setting. No more cows. No more cows. Above all, they bequeath to us that very queasy cocktail of wildly conspicuous consumption and a guilty conscience, (laughs) the annual realisation that the continuation for yet another year of poverty and inequality are shocking and obvious scandals that have no need whatever to continue.
1: It's in fact amazing to discover just how much of our Christmas dates from the middle and end of the 19th century –
0: The Nine Lessons and Carols... Actually, most people think that began at King's College, Cambridge in 1918, after the war.
1: But it was in fact originally invented much earlier by Edward Benson, the Bishop of Truro, in 1880. It's often said that he came up with the idea as a way to get the drunken Cornish out of the
0: pubs. Though I think nobody's been able to prove it.
1: Anyway, the first time Benson tried this service of Nine Lessons and Carols, 400 people turned up to the wooden shed that was his cathedral while the present spectacular stone one was being built.
0: In fact, just started in 1880. And the quality of the singing, I wonder, not recorded, so far as I know. So what about the Christmas Panto? Well, the Christmas Panto reached its current form in the 1880s and 1890s. Actually, it's a really long and complex story. Its evolution in the theatres, especially of London, in the course of the nineteenth century. Oh no, it isn't. Oh, oh no, yeah, yes, it is. (laughs) In the first decades of the nineteenth century, it had fundamentally been a mime pantomime, a mime created to get around the official censors. So if they didn't say any words, they
1: they couldn't be censored.
0: Because you were only supposed to have long passages of spoken word in two theatres, the Royal Theatres of Covent Garden and Drury Lane. Two theatres. But after the end of that law, which in fact occurred in 1843, the year year of Christmas Christmas Carol, Carol. uh, pantomime had grown into a spectacular series of dazzling special effects demanding a a bewildering collection of machines and trapdoors and lifts and flying scenery and flying people. Much better than we have now. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, it morphed into a mix of music hall and circus acts pretty much as we know it today. Do you know, once I proposed to reconstruct a Victorian pantomime and the transformation scene with all the amazing machines and so on, which existed in, in a theatre, uh, one of the theatres in Britain, I was going to reconstruct it for TV, for Channel 4. It would have been absolutely fascinating mm. and spectacular. I
1: bet they'd have repeated it every year. They would have
0: repeated it every year for Christmas. So did they do it? No, nope. Channel 4, of course, turned it down. They said it was too folksy uh-huh. and they'd rather have more documentaries with professors talking about the war. No, <laughs> no, really, that's actually what they said. Can you believe it?
1: And then this mime, this pantomime, that had originally been staged throughout the year, became from the 1840s exclusively something that happened at Christmas. Mm. By the Christmas of 1883, there were pantos at 104 theatres in 72 towns and cities across the UK, including 11 in London.
0: Well, no wonder, because then, as now, it was all that was keeping most of the theatres going.
1: Mm. So where did the cross-dressing come from? Principal boys who were girls and dames who were men.
0: Well, uh, yeah, that's another whole story. All we can say here is that they certainly date from long before the Panto, but that by the mid-Victorian period, they had become a fixture in the Pantos and really nowhere else. Yet again, it was the Victorians what did it.
1: Oh, no, they didn't. Oh,
0: yes, they did. Okay. oh, yes, they did. And then there are the Christmas cards and crackers and... (laughs) According to the Victoria and Albert Museum, Christmas crackers also appeared in the 1840s. Though they didn't go off with a bang until the 1860s. And the first Christmas card was sent in 1843, coincidentally that year when Dickens had written A Christmas Carol. Which brings us to snow, because most years the only white Christmas we get is on the Christmas cards. Which is very hard, because we hardly ever get snow these days. Why is there still snow on Christmas cards?
1: Well, the reason is that there was much more snow in Victorian Britain when Christmas cards were invented. That was the very end of what historical geographers call the Little Ice Age, a period of colder weather lasting from the mid-16th to the mid-19th centuries. Now, Dickens was born in 1812, and the decade, 1810-19, to 19, was the coldest since the 1690s. The winter of 1813-14 to 14 was one of the coldest and snowest on record. 1829 to 30 was also a spectacularly white christmas and is supposed to be the model for the christmas scenes in pickwick papers in fact the ice didn't finally clear from the thames
0: until february later of course they speeded the thames up by getting rid of weirs and other obstructions which is why it doesn't freeze over anymore mhm after the 1840s bitter winters were less common but in 1866, there were snow drifts of two and a half metres in Regent Street. Imagine. And in 1878, it was minus 18. That's minus 18 in Durham on Christmas Day, which I think is the coldest Christmas day on record. Well, the point is that by then, the image of white Christmases had got stuck. In her diary for 1860, Queen Victoria records her delight at seeing the snow return that year, which she describes as the true Christmas weather. By the time mass-produced Christmas cards became popular in the 1870s, snow had become an essential and rather nostalgic part of the scene, partly because it was already becoming slightly less common. So what about Lapland? Lapland. Lapland came to be the land of Christmas, particularly apparently for the English, by the 1890s. It was imagined as the place where the gnome-like Yule Tompton worked and helped Santa Claus.
1: In fact, that all fits with the romanticisation of the Arctic North which since the 1880s had been enticing tourists further and further up into the ice. It was part of what sparked a procession of much more serious explorers, setting off on dangerous journeys
0: to and around the pole. Well, as we'll see in our series on explorers, those explorations, in fact, often turn out to be about as much myth as Father Christmas was. Another true story that really needs telling.
1: Lapland only officially became the home of Julu Puki, in other words, Father Christmas, in 1927, when the immense forests of Korvatuntuni. I, I didn't
0: know you spoke Finnish.
1: Mm, with their herds of wild reindeer, were revealed as the home of Father Christmas by the Finnish radio presenter known as
0: Uncle Marcus. You, know, you can still send letters to Father Christmas 99999 Korvatuntuni,
1: Finland. Well, I never had that address when I was a child. Father Christmas was in fact removed to the city of Rovaniemi in the 1980s under a new Finnish government strategy for winter tourism. But don't
0: worry, his mail gets forwarded there. No, it it really does. (laughs) Father Christmas began appearing in person in American department stores in the 1890s. They're responsible for a lot, the Americans, aren't they? But he was only brought to today's ruddy-complexioned red-and-white ho -ho -ho hoing perfection by Haddon Sunny Sunbloom. Now, Sonny Tumbling was an artist from Muskegon, Michigan. His Father Christmas was originally based on his retired neighbour, Lou Prentice, and was created for a long series of adverts from 1931.
1: Up until then, Father Christmas had turned up in a series of fur-trimmed outfits in various colours, increasingly often red, but sometimes a kind of greeny-brown that made him look like he'd just come from a pheasant shoot.
0: Well, Sonny Sunbloom always had him in bright red and white, with an enormous winning smile, and he's been that way ever since. And of course, red and white, the corporate colours of the company the adverts were for. It was, well, you knew that already.
1: <laughs> Coca-Cola. So in the end, even the mysterious, part pagan, part saint, part fairy, part gnome, Santa Yulu Puki
0: Weihnachtsman,
1: Father Christmas to you and me, gave in... To the whole commercial vibe
0: the rest of Christmas after all have been that way since the 1840s so father Christmas is the least commercialized of the whole tradition maybe he held out maybe there's something still part pagan about him
1: yeah I like him so you have a very happy Christmas have a very and happy I hope Christmas. he comes down your chimney <laughs>
0: There are 70 evergreen podcasts now at the History Café and reading lists for every one of them. You can find them on our website, historycafé.org and you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter. We're also
1: on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and many other platforms. Just look out for History Café Podcasts with John and Penelope. And
0: beware of imitations.
1: Follow our regular blog at History Café Pod and spread the word.